morning and go right into the Word of God. Philippians, to me, again, is one of my favorite places to look because Philippians is a place filled with joy. And as we talked about in the introduction of Philippians last week, there's a lot of people who struggle specifically with issues related to depression. And I don't want to sort of soft sell that theme because a lot of people are discouraged in life, in seasons of life and then for long stretches of life. And so I want us to go into Philippians and drink deeply the theme of joy. Joy is a big deal idea in life. It's what we need to have and and possess as Christians because we are commanded to be joyful. Joy is, is mentioned three times, four times specifically, and then nine more times in terms of the word rejoice, and a couple more times in terms of gladness, and a couple more times in terms of the word thanksgiving. The idea of thanksgiving is from the word eucharisto, and so it's the idea of a praise and worship gratitude. This is what should be the aroma of your Christian life. Joy should be permeating and overflowing in our lives for people to see. And really, once you realize who you are in Christ, the only thing that we should be guilty of being discouraged over is our own personal sin. And even then, we have the balm of the gospel that salves our conscience as we understand grace in Christ. The German theologian Johannes Bingle said in a Latin phrase as he had poured over this book of the Bible, he said, Summa Epistole Gaudio Gaudete. Translation, the whole point of the letter, this letter is, I rejoice, you rejoice. I rejoice, you rejoice. Paul had joy and that joy was infectious as an example to the church. And we need to find out about this treasure for the Christian life, the Christian heart that's called joy. We do. Well, I want to ask a question. How can Paul and the Holy Spirit through Paul command us to be joyful? I mean, joy is more than a feeling. It's more than an emotion. It's more than a mood, right? Joy is an attitude. It's an attitude. It's, it's a character quality that comes through a Christian mind. When you have a Christian mindset that's been transformed, you think differently about life. You think about circumstances, your own circumstances, and for all believers that transcend these circumstances, and so you can rejoice. You can follow that command. And in Philippians 3.1 and Philippians 4.4, it is commanded, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Don't miss that little phrase, that little prepositional phrase. Where are we supposed to find the source of our joy? In the Lord. Why can you rejoice? Why can you do it? Why can you have this spirit-wrought attitude? Because the repository, the reservoir for joy is Jesus, and Christ in your life can always sustain joy in your life, even through the most difficult of circumstances. Joy in Christ, it's what makes the gospel attractive, it's what authenticates the gospel as good, and it's an aroma of Christ around 
the world as they see your life. We must have joy. We must tap into joy. And it's found here where? In a dark Roman prison, bubbling over from the life of the Apostle Paul as he's shackled to the imperial guard. He's in Rome. He's in prison from all external circumstances. The mission failed. It hasn't worked. The gospel doesn't work. The gospel gets you in trouble. The gospel gets sort of incarcerated and contained guess what not true Paul knew better and so he rejoiced and so we find joy in the most unlikely place in a Roman prison they could contain Paul but they could not contain his joy and we're going to talk about it 2,000 years later it's still uncontained joy inexpressible full of glory focused on Jesus Christ it's fueled by Christ and that joy, I got to say, moved in two directions always. One single focus on Christ for his glory, rejoicing in the Lord and wanting other people. This is the second direction, up and then outward, wanting other people to have that joy. Share in the fellowship of the gospel. Share in my joy. That's what Paul was doing. Paul was, and you'll see this from the text, a people person. Christianity is by and large, about falling in love with people. You want the lost to know Jesus and you want the, the people who know Jesus to know Jesus more with you. It's the fellowship of the gospel. It's a shared vision of joy together for the gospel. Joy. And uh, you cannot be a Christian recluse. You just can't do it. It contradicts the gospel. I know that there are different temperaments. There are people who sort of feed on time with people and they're the extroverts and then you have the introverts who are sort of depleted by being with people. There are the people who love the crowd, who love the stage, who love the microphone and there are people who are agoraphobic. I can't figure out why I'm both. But anyway, it's just one of those things where as a Christian, you should be thinking, I need to love people, and I need to love people more. I need to love them intimately. I need to love the good, the bad, and the ugly about people. And that was Paul's investment. Let's look at his investment. Look at his heart in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 7. Follow as I read. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In this text, we find two reasons that Paul was thankful or thanked God for his best friends. Best friends, I say, because there's no other letter in the New Testament where someone gushed with joy over people like this. He had no qualms with the Philippian church. He loved them. As we learned last week, he planted this church. He won these people to Christ. He loved Yodia and Sintichi, who had conflict with each other, but he still commended them big time and loved them. 
He loved Epaphroditus. We're going to learn about him. He calls him a brother in the Lord. We don't know if Paul led him to Christ. He loved Lydia, who was the seller of purple at the river by Thyatira. Loved her, taught her. She came to Christ. Her whole family came to Christ. Loved the Philippian jailer who said, what do I do to be saved? Believe. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was saved. His whole family was saved, part of that church. He loved perhaps the demonized slave girl who came to Christ where the demon was cast out. And I believe she believed in the Lord at that point. He loved these people. He was together with them in fellowship because he loved them and prayed for them. It's a people person. Why did he thank God for his best friends? Number one, he saw God's grace in their lives. We're going to see this in verses three through five. And then also in verse 7 this morning, he was contained, his love for them was not contained. He loved these people because he was in fellowship with them. We're going to learn that in Philippians 4, their, their fellowship was, was tangible. They were giving to Paul. They didn't give up on their servant leader, their, their primary leader who was chained in prison. They didn't give up on him and he didn't give up on them. There was giving towards Paul's ministry. They were in fellowship. Fellowship, I got to just emphasize this word as we talk about the evidences of grace in this church because the word fellowship is so much more than just a throwaway word that we sort of use flippantly within the church. We had good fellowship together. We had good, you know, synonym. We had good chicken together, right? I mean, no, we, you know, we, we had good backgammon together. I mean, you know, no, it's fellowship is the word used here for a shared vision of togetherness and partnership in the gospel. And it's not just like togetherness, like church social togetherness or PTA togetherness. This is togetherness like wartime foxhole togetherness. This is family bond togetherness. This is heart to heart, like we're, we're in you know, the Super Bowl together togetherness where you go out on the field at, you know, at risk of paralysis and neck injury togetherness. I mean, this is togetherness where we got each other's backs togetherness. That's what he's saying is filling his heart with joy. Isn't that, that's something you could get excited about when you've got somebody's back like that and they've got yours like that. That's something you can live on. And that's what Paul is Saying here, verse 5, he uses the word partnership in the gospel. It's the word fellowship. It's koinonia. It's koine. Verse 7, partakers with me of grace. That word partakers. Same fellowship koine word. We, we understand grace together. That's a foundation for what we talk about as we've all drunk of grace together. Chapter 2, verse 1. Any participation in the spirit. You see that word participation? It's the idea of what are we unified as a church over? Well, we all have the Holy Spirit in common together. We've all been redeemed together. We all have a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit together. The Holy Spirit has touched all of our lives together. Chapter 3, verse 10. The word shows up again. Paul in his testimonies, pouring his heart out, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings. The word share, koine, partnership, fellowship word. And he's saying, look, we all have suffered for the gospel. We're gonna look later on at 2 Corinthians 8. 
the churches in Macedonia, which one of them would be, a premier one would be this church, they had suffered great affliction in joy together. There's, uh, Paul is saying, look, the fellowship, the fellowship of suffering with Christ, we, we, we sort of do it in the name of the gospel. We're willing to go to prison. We're willing to not soft sell the gospel. We're willing to sacrifice for the gospel. Look at Philippians 4, verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into, here's the word, fellowship or partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. They gave. There was sort of meat and potatoes behind the fellowship. There was tangible offerings in support. And that offering was a symbol of a shared vision. Again, fellowship is a word that was used in this time period as sort of going into business together. It would be like saying, hey, we're going to start up a fishing industry together. We're going to throw all our resources into this company. We're going to stand by it. We're going to buy into the vision together, and we're sold out for it with passion. That's what Paul is talking about here in terms of the gospel. We know Jesus together, and guess what? We want other people to know Jesus. We want other churches to pop up. It's the fellowship of the gospel. We all are reconciled together with him. You say, well, you know what? I have non-Christian friends that get my back more than Christian friends. Well, you know, that can be a sad testimony and even a real experience or echo of your own heart or life. But again, this fellowship is born by the Holy Spirit. And when you taste of fellowship with someone that's this kind of fellowship, you know it as distinctly different and better than anything you can have with anyone else. As a matter of fact, the non-Christian relationships that you have where you love people and are, are sort of in, you know, sort of in common with people, what you long for, the closer you get to those people, is for those people to know Jesus so you can get to the tipping point of the relationship and, and join at the deepest level, Right? I'm not saying don't have Christian friends. It's just you kind of secretly long for that domino to fall so you can say, man, now we, we're tasting of something that we never could before. It's good to have all kinds of relationships and friendships, but it's great to have fellowship in the gospel with people. It's a good point of examination. Do you have a Christian friend? Do you have somebody that you're relying on in the gospel that no matter what, they're gonna get your back and know you and love you at the core of your being. That's the fellowship of the gospel. I was reading in a commentary, someone said, hey, if you keep quoting this commentary, you need to put it out there for us to buy. That's true. Um, that's some Christian fellowship, right? Some accountability there. Chapter two of this book, you know, it's Kent Hughes, he wrote it. I met Kent, um, you know, he's an older gentleman, 70 years old. I met him last spring um, in California, and it was sort of by chance. I showed up to a place he was speaking, wonderful guy, loves the Lord, emanates Christ, and I've been reading him off and on for 20 years. He's a, he's a remarkable, lovely guy in the Lord, very strong preacher, and he wrote these words. Um, regarding this text and regarding the fellowship of the gospel. He said, when theologian Broughton Knox, who served as a young chaplain for the English Navy during World War II, he wrote of 
fellowship in this way. He says that he was on a British Navy ship preparing for D-Day at the invasion of Normandy. And again, he's the chaplain. He said he noted that the minds of all the hands on board, regardless of rank, were focused on the invasion success. No one thought of his own interest, but only on how he could help the shipmates in their commonly shared task. He says, quote, I remember noting in my mind how I had never been happier. You ever experienced something like that where you're so focused, you're just on mission, whether it's a missions trip or maybe you've been at war over in Iraq or Afghanistan or you've been on a sports team or, or you've been in a business crisis where it's crisis all around, but you're all in with a community of people. So you're not focused on yourself, you're focused on the other people and you're trying to get something done and you're in it and you, you reap joy from the outward focusedness of the moment. That's what he's talking about. He's describing, he says, after the invasion, the return to England, everyone noticed a difference in the atmosphere on the ship. It was still friendly because it was a well-run ship, but several of the sailors sensing the difference asked the young chaplain why things had changed. Knox reflects, quote, the answer was quite simple. During these months that preceded and followed D-Day, our thoughts had minimum, had a minimum of self-centeredness in them. We gave ourselves to our shared activity and objective. But once the undertaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes. Talking about fellowship. Fellowship in the gospel is sustained and sustainable by the Holy Spirit. It's not circumstantially driven. It's driven along and borne along by the power of the Holy Spirit where you are uniquely knit together in love. It's what every married person longs for is the fellowship of the gospel. Where's joy for marriage? When you're committed to the gospel together. Where's joy in your father-son relationships? When you're knit together in the gospel. Where's joy together in your father-daughter relationships? It's when you love Christ in common. You can't drum this up, but you need to set sort of the table for this kind of fellowship in your heart. And I want you to see how you set the table for this fellowship in Paul's heart. Again, he reflects on two reasons that he's thanking God for his best friends. And the first reason is simply that he saw the evidences of God's grace in their lives. What were these evidences? What were these evidences of fellowship in their lives? Well, number one, verse five, they were loyal through change. He says, he was thanking his God in remembrance of them, always in every prayer for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Catch that phrase, from the first day till now. Where's the first day? The first day is when Paul won these people to Christ. So from that point, 20 years later, Paul's reflecting on a 20-year relationship back to this church going, look, you have stuck it out with me. I am now in prison, chained to a guard. It looks like the mission failed, and you're still with me. You ever have a friend like that? That's what made hearts, Paul's heart burst with joy and their hearts as well. It says back up in verse three that he was remembering them. That's a mind word. 
Now, don't get intimidated by Paul's prayer life. First of all, he was freed up to pray because he was jailed, so there was nothing else he could do. He was undistracted in terms of his mind, and he chose to be undistracted with the right focus. But that word remembrance is a mind word, and it's the idea that as these people popped up in his frontal lobe, he prayed for them, and he prayed prayers of joy. The love that he had for them covered a multitude of sins. Now, were these people sinners? Yes, just as bad as you and me. That Philippian church was. But Paul loved them nevertheless. It's the idea when you love somebody, even your spouse, when you love him or her so much that if someone were to ask you on a quiz show, hey, you know, tell me three or four faults about your spouse. I mean, what a death question, right? You know, you know, for 100 points, please tell me, you know, and you're going, what you should be doing in that moment is going, uh, hmm, uh, nothing's coming to mind. And when that's real, then you have fellowship in your marriage. And I mean that. There's no negative. Now, it's not that we're unrealistic about each other in our lives together, but the love factor, it, it sort of colors the way you see your spouse. And Paul had those same glasses on with this church. He kept remembering them, and he would remember them in the context of the fact that they had remembered him. Some people sort of um, play the grammar out in that way that the remembrance was really the fact that he was overjoyed that they had remembered him and had given to him to support him at his deepest time of need remembrance I mean again Paul was a people person if you were to read Romans 16 that whole chapter the last chapter of one of the greatest books written in the Bible is 33 names that Paul is in love with 33 just people who he had won to Christ or who he had encountered all through Asia Minor who had finally collected at the church at Rome. And he's just gushing over them. He's a people person. He's remembering this church specifically always, verse 4, in every prayer of mine. I mean, we're not, we are to pray without ceasing, but it's a realistic call to pray as we're living our daily lives. And as people come to mind, we should pray for them. There's no ritualism here. There's no mechanical prayers that are listed here. This is overflow praying, and it's what we should be a part of as we look at verse 7, carry people around in our hearts. That's what Paul was doing. So this first mark of grace is they were loyal to him from the beginning all the way until now. Secondly, they were loyal in shame. Look at verse 7. We're skipping verse 6, we'll come back to it. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, deep affection, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Pick up on the word imprisonment. That word is tied to partakers with me of grace. It's the idea that, look, because we've all tasted the grace of the gospel, and we are all delivered from our sins together by grace alone, it's as if we're all bound together, even as if they were in prison with Paul himself. That's how Paul felt. The word imprisonment is the word for bonds or chains, shackles. Paul is saying, look, there's shame going on in my life. I am shamed in this prison, but you're there with me, and you didn't give up on me. It's like you're shackled with me, in prison. 
partakers of grace, fellowshipping in grace with me in jail and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is another mark of grace. They were, they were loyal through the change where Paul now was in prison. They were loyal in the shame where Paul was shamed by being there. And they were loyal to the gospel itself. Look at that at the end of verse 7. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense is the word apologia. You've heard of the discipline of apologetics. Apologetics is where you make a defense for the faith. You're defending the gospel. You say, why do you have to defend the truth? Well, it's because God gets glory from his children standing up for truth and protecting the gospel. This same gospel that got Paul put in jail, guess what? Could have gotten the Macedonian Philippians put in jail. Remember, we talked about Macedonia and specifically Philippi. Philippi is population 10,000 people, but it was a colony town highly and specifically associated with Rome. So much so that people called it Little Italy. So if you're standing up for Christ there, you're rubbing up against the overlord Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and so you could get in big trouble saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That's what happened to Paul. That's why it rubbed people the wrong way. When you take that kind of stance with the gospel, it does ruffle feathers. Because pride is in the land. And so Paul is saying, look, thank you for being willing to put yourself out there because I could die for the faith. I mean, he's going to get into this. To live is Christ, to die is gain, right? So his life is on the line. He's saying, thanks for connecting with me and connecting for the truth of the gospel. A lot of people want to water down the gospel. A lot of people want to take the rough edges off the gospel and say, let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about repentance. Let's not talk about the exclusivity of knowing Christ alone for salvation. Let's not say Jesus is God. Let's just sort of, you know, say that, well, we've got different nuances of the faith and different creedal positions. No, Jesus is Lord. There's one way to heaven. You have to repent and believe and confess Jesus as Lord. That's the gospel. Jesus died, was buried rose again on the third day ascended to the right hand of heaven and he's coming back bodily literally to take us home that's the gospel it's by grace through faith alone and that not of ourselves it is a gift of God not by works we don't want to muddy it we want to be clear with it it's the gospel that saves it's that truth that turns the lights on in people's hearts and Paul said you didn't compromise it for 20 years I've known you and you're no compromise you're all in, and you're, you're with me in my heart. And that is making my heart burst forth with joy. Joy in the gospel. The word confirmation is an awesome word. It's the word for oath or commitment or encouragement. Those ideas are there. It's like you, you've made a blood oath, a pact with me, and we're together again for the gospel. You know what drums up? sadness in the heart of a person it's when a person becomes man-centered instead of god-centered in the gospel and and paul was very god-centered saying look god has done this work in your life that's why he's he's showing these things not that not to prop up the philippians saying, oh look what you're doing look what you're doing look what you're doing you know what he's doing he's saying all of the things that you're doing point to the fact that god's grace is evident in your life Remember that in verse 
me make sure I get it. Verse 7, partakers with me of grace. He's saying, look, these things that you're doing, where you're defending the gospel, where you're sticking it out with me in loyal love, where you are, you're, you're confirming your commitment to the gospel, that is the evidence of grace in your life. And it proves that you are the real thing because God is the only person behind the scenes who can do that in people's lives. God's the reason that missionaries die on the field. God's the reason that we give towards the gospel. God's the reason why we self-sacrificially serve each other. God's the reason why we're willing to suffer shame for standing for truth. God's the reason. And Paul's saying, look, God is at work in your life, and these are evidences of grace. As we go back to verse 6, which is a very famous New Testament verse, I just want to introduce it by saying verse 6 is talking about the doctrine of perseverance. That when you're saved and God saves you, a work begins that God promises to complete in your life. In other words, once saved, always saved, but once saved, you will persevere because God behind the scenes will make sure that happens. And he promises to make it happen in your life. It's a doctrine of perseverance. It's one of the most important doctrines in Scripture that people who are believers will keep believing in this life all the way to the end. In John 8, Jesus said to his listeners, Pharisees at that point, if you hold to my teaching, then you're truly my disciples. It's people who are sort of wishy-washy. They're sort of revealing that something's wrong in the heart. And maybe God never saved them in the first place. But those who are truly saved will be kept all the way to the end. John 2.24 is where Jesus encountered people who were sort of excited about his miracle ministry. They're saying, wow, look at all the things that you can do. And so we believe in you. And it says in John 2.24, Jesus did not entrust his heart to them because he knew that they were only believing in him on account of the miracles. It was superficial faith or what D.A. Carson calls a fickle faith. It's real. There's a lot of people who profess because they're wild, but they're not really part of the fellowship of the gospel. So there are warnings that come with this doctrine. Hebrews 3 is a warning passage. It says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, am I saying that salvation is up to us? No. I'm saying that God is the one who starts the work and what God does, he cannot and will not mess up. He doesn't mess it up. What God does, he does right. And we really, we're not the ones who save ourselves at all. And so God's the one who starts the process, sustains the process and finishes it off at the end. This is the doctrine of perseverance. This is why I believe in eternal security because when God saves someone, it was in the mind of God before he saved them, he turns the lights on and he holds them all the way to the end and nothing can, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You say, what about falling from grace from Galatians? Or what about the apostasy that's found in the pastoral epistles where Paul says that certain people made shipwreck of their faith? Yeah, people look like Christians on the outside and then prove they aren't by falling in one of two ditches, false teaching, they begin to believe a false gospel or they begin to fall away in unrepentant immorality. And when they do that, they prove that 
they were not alive at the start in the first place. They just sort of looked like it externally. You kind of see some changes, but then they prove out that they were never saved in the first place. And that oftentimes is what brings people to the crossroads where you say, listen, you know, I've walked with you my whole life and I, I've seen you pray. I've prayed with you. I've worshiped alongside you. What's going on? And, and they go, man, you know what? You're right. I, I need to repent. And then if they repent, then we don't know exactly if they got saved at that point or if they really were saved before and backslid. We don't, who cares? You know, they're, they're, they're proving out the fruit of the Spirit, the evidences of these graces in the life of believers, and that affirms that they are believers. It's the doctrine of repentance. It's the doctrine of perseverance. It's the doctrine of salvation. Salvation is all of God. It's not of ourselves. When you pray for somebody to be saved, it's like somebody's drowning and you can't reach them. You can pray for them, but you're praying that God, the ultimate lifeguard, will reach down and save that person. You're not going, hey, learn to swim. Learn to swim, you're drowning. You don't do that. You say, God, rescue that person, please. You're not saying, hey, rescue yourself. You're saying, rescue that person. That's salvation. It's rescue. Well, the second reason Paul praised God is verse 6. He knew that God had saved them. He was certain of it. He was sure that God had saved them. Let me just introduce an applicational pro, um, definition as we sort of enter into verse 6. The definition of a miserable Christian is someone trying to do the Christian life before having a clear grasp of the doctrine of salvation. You ever met somebody like this? Somebody who maybe perhaps believed that they sort of brought themselves into the kingdom. They don't, they're not really clear on what happened to them. They're saved. They've got a clear gospel understanding. Uh, you know, they are regenerate. The lights have been turned on. But instead of really drinking deeply into the gospel at the first they, they go on to start to try to live the Christian life and spin out, tripping over one stick after the other on the path. You ever met somebody like that? Have you ever done that? It's like people who have no assurance of their salvation, but they're really saved. But instead of understanding that God saved them, they are trying to like keep themselves alive through the do's and don'ts of Christianity and they keep stumbling and falling down and spiraling into depression. Man, I blew it again. I blew it again. How could I be a Christian if I did that? If this person knew that I said that about God, they'd never forgive me. And surely God hasn't forgiven me. You ever experienced that? If, if someone knew about that sin that happened in my life, then there's no way that they would believe I was a Christian. So people just spiral down in their thoughts. You know, I tried to have a quiet time and I blew it again. I haven't had a quiet time in a month. I, wow, I, there's no way I could be alive. Look at Paul's testimony. I don't stand up to this. That's the kind of thinking that is performance trap thinking, legalistic thinking, where you are bound up in your own self-centeredness and sort of shackled and, and spiraling down in depression. And it's because... To use a metaphor that's like a baseball game, it's like going to second base. You hit the ball out of the park, but you go to second base before touching first. 
A lot of people, they, they, they run, you know, they, they hit the ball, it's out of the park, and then you skip first base and you go to second base and it sort of is messing things up. First base is understanding the doctrine of salvation. That's by grace through faith alone. That when a person is saved, God clothes a person with the righteousness of Christ. It was nothing that they did or do to sustain their salvation. You understand that it was God in Christ who chose you before the foundation of the world. You understand that salvation is great, big, and it's what God does in a person's life. And God did in your life that gives you confidence that you're saved. You, you completely separate out your Christian living from the fact that God saved you. That is a once-for-all work in your life. By the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, God turns the lights on, and in response to that, we believe. And Philippians 6 drills in all of this confidence into the heart of a believer. It's all God's work. Look at Philippians 6 here. Number one, salvation is certain. This is the first base of the gospel. Got to go to first base. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was certain. He was certain. It's almost like an axiomatic um, sort of understanding that if someone is living for Christ in this way, and working for Christ in this way, it means that God initiated the work from the start. That's what he's saying. He's certain of it. He knows where the origin of salvation comes from. Secondly, salvation is authored by God. He who began a good work in you. Who began it? God did. Who saved Lydia at the river? Who did Paul lead to Christ? Well, Paul might have been the instrument, you know, preaching, sharing Christ, and she might have been pre-cooked because she was worshiping Yahweh. But it says in Acts 16, we don't have time to go there, but in Acts 16 that God opened Lydia's heart. Who saved Lydia? God did. He began the good work. The Philippian jailer, he was called to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Guess what? If God didn't open the Philippian jailer's heart, he would not believe and be saved. That's how it works. It's a biblical, beautiful balance of salvation. The good work here is uh, plural here. It's the idea that, that Paul is saying the good work in you is the you church. God has saved you, all of you at the church. Now, it doesn't mean everybody that goes to church or shows up is saved, but he's saying in general, this good work that is the fellowship of the gospel is proof positive that you are saved people because God is behind the scenes doing this work. Salvation is authored by God. And thirdly, salvation is guaranteed by God. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 6 again. Begins the good work in you. He will bring it to completion. The word completion is the... Greek word telos, it's where we get the idea of, of, of completion or an end state, something being complete or finished. You remember the word tetelestai? That's sort of the phrase that Jesus cried on the cross where he says, said, it is finished. It's the same word family, same idea, tetelestai, it's finished. 
everyone who is to be saved is paid for by Christ on the cross in that moment. It was redemption, redemption that was accomplished and applied at that moment to telestai. It is finished. And in the same way, Paul is saying, you are guaranteed to be in heaven because God will bring it to completion. You know, if I had anything to do with my salvation, I would have messed it up a long time ago, right? If I could undo my salvation, guilty, it's over, it's gone, I messed up again. God starts the work, he sustains the work, and completes the work. And in the mind of God, salvation is complete. 1 John 3, 2 says that the completion will come when we're face to face with Christ. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You're saved positionally now, but you still have a sinful hangover. You still got some sin gobbledygook that hangs on because we're still human. It's still there. The sin isn't reigning. It's not ruling, but it gives us some tough times that we have to fight through because we're tempted in our hearts. But one day when we see Christ face to face, we will be glorified and we will be given resurrection bodies at the day of Jesus Christ where we can worship God perfectly without sin. Philippians 2 verse 9. Look at this, just one page over in your Bible. It alludes to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every Name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you anticipate that day? Think about it. I mean, when you're having your worst temptation struggle, when you're tempted to despair, when you're spiraling down, don't forget about the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, man, you know, I praise you now and confess you now as Lord. And this is practice. Practice that's going to be ongoing in this life until I am completely free of all of my sin. No more sin, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more aches and pains, no more dying, no more demons, no more temptations. I mean, it's all gone and I can freely worship you, God, face to face. One day, those who are believers, according to Philippians 2, and unbelievers, the supernatural realms of angels and demons will all bow face down on the dirt before God and say, Jesus, you are Lord. And as believers, we can rejoice in that moment because we know that's heaven. It's the center of heaven where we can focus on Christ as Lord. I sort of reflected on this text in verse 6, reading a commentary by William Barclay, and he's got some unique historical insights often, and one thing that he brought up about verse 6 is that during the Greco-Roman time period, there were sacrifices that were given, even pagan sacrifices, where the same language that's used here in verse 6 is is used of the Greek sacrifices where you would begin the process, you'd begin the work by putting the sacrifice on the altar, you would sort of pour the water over the sacrifice and you would light a flame and, and, and burn the sacrifice and from start to completion the sacrifice was done and given. And I just want to say that Paul may have been thinking of that in this verse. 
because salvation, first and foremost, is for God's glory. Um, it's certain, it's authored by God, it's guaranteed by God, and then fourthly, it's for God's glory. And it's for God's glory because ultimately when you are brought before Jesus Christ face to face, salvation at that point is not primarily first and foremost about you, it's about him. Do you get that? We, we definitely think about our salvation. We think about our own personal security. We think about our status in Christ. But think about it this way for a moment. Salvation, first and foremost, is about God and for his glory. It is. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says we are, to call, we are called to be living sacrifices. And in this sense, with this understanding, the work that God began in you when he saved you was that he plucked you from the fire and he's sort of given you to Christ and Christ is offering you in glory as a sacrifice to the Father for his glory for all of eternity. You're a living sacrifice and the work begins at salvation when he saved you. Living sacrifice. This builds confidence. Look at verse eight just real quickly. Paul says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul was so thrilled about this church. He's saying, look, as God is my witness, you are saved and I love you no matter what. Praise the Lord and glory to God. Now, what, what kind of church was this? I want to give you one final place to look to give you a window into the heart of this church. Turn over to 2 Corinthians as we close chapter 8 and look at verse 1. This is what kind of church this was. This church wasn't just sitting there with no suffering in Macedonia and specifically at Philippi. This church went through some things. And this is the testimony that this church had. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The premier church there is Philippi, the one we've been talking about says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. First of all, let me just note this. Remember, they were the one church that remembered Paul in prison. Extreme poverty. Why did they give? Because they had a lot of money and resources, you know, their, their IRA, you know, was, was filled up. And this is sort of the overflow, skimming the cream off of, you know, what they've saved up. No. They are giving out of the overflow of their poverty as they had means to do that. Verse 3, they gave according to their means. In other words, they gave above and beyond just regular means. And as God provided for them, they were, they were giving in the fellowship of the gospel. Now, were they giving because their life was easier than Paul's and they were sort of out of the fray and out of the fight? No, look at verse two again. In a severe test of affliction, the word flipsis is here. It's the idea of an acute affliction, a specific attack on their lives. Through sharing and suffering, they shared their money. And did they do it begrudgingly? Look at verse two again. It was out of their abundance of joy and extreme poverty. 
Look at verse 4. They were part of a relief offering too. It says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Romans 15, 26 clarifies that as a relief offering that was given to the mothership church where it all began in Jerusalem. It's giving to some hurting people where the wealthier churches now were in Asia Minor. They were giving back to the church where everything originated in Jerusalem. Remember Pentecost? That's where it all began. They were giving back to that origin. Out of their poverty, out of their joy, they gave. That's what kind of church this was as a mature church. Now, where does all that come from? One place, the gospel. Specifically, it comes from Christ himself. Look at verse 9. Here's the ultimate example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the premier example.